welcome again. So glad to see you. Sunshine was nice, wasn't it? No rain. I had a nice walk around the lake. Enjoyed that. Got a little bit of the rain yesterday. Glad you're here. Got your naps all done. Ready to study Ellen White again? Yesterday, we looked at understanding her as a person. Today, we'll seek to understand her as a prophetess. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your tender mercy to us here at Camp Meeting. We want to claim your presence with us this afternoon as we think once again of the prophetic gift. Guide our discussion. Bless all that's here. We thank you for doing this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ellen White is a prophet. There's many different angles we could take on her. There's actually there's a whole course on her prophetic ministry. But I want to focus my thoughts mainly on her prophetic gift and its relationship to the Bible, which has to do with the issue of authority. I'm also going to discuss revelation inspiration because they're related. If she had prophetic authority, she had the gift of inspiration. What exactly is that? How did it operate? But to begin with, I want to look at the scriptural precedent for the gift of prophecy at the end of time. So let's look at a very important Bible verse, Revelation 12, 17. We know this. It's in the context of the book of Revelation. If you read Revelation carefully, it's, it's structured according to what color, scholars call a mountain climbing structure, or a chiasm is the technical term, or a mountain climbing structure where it, it builds to a literary peak. The themes in the earlier chapters parallel the themes in the later chapters, and they build in layers up to a central point, which is the literary center of the, the book, the most important part of the book. Many of the biblical books were written this way, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The, their minds in that, that area at that time thought that way. We don't always see that, but Revelation is written according to that, and chapters 12, 13, and 14 are the peak, the literary center of the book. So we're dealing with the heart of Revelation. And chapter 12, as you know, begins with the war in heaven. The woman symbolizing the church and the dragon symbolizing the devil and the great controversy between the two. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. There was war in heaven and the devil and his angels were cast out. But he pursued the woman, he pursued the church into the wilderness. But the church overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. But nevertheless, he still pursued the church. And it climaxes with this verse. The last verse, a very important Seventh-day Adventist verse. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. That is, the devil was angry with the church. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Remnant, as you know, is the last part. The last part of her seed, that is, God's people at the end of time, the last people. They're characterized this way, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard this verse preached in Adventist churches and evangelistic meetings. There's two characteristics. They keep the, the commandments of God in the context. John has just seen the Ark of the Covenant. It's clearly the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. That's in chapter 11. But this testimony of Jesus, what, what is the testimony of Jesus? It is a testimony related to Jesus Christ. But the key issue here, is it a testimony coming from Jesus? Or is it a testimony about Jesus? Now the Greek in which this is written in, John first wrote it, the, the Greek preposition of could be interpreted either way. In fact, if you just take the phrase testimony of Jesus Christ, it could be read either as a testimony coming from Jesus or a testimony about Jesus. In the Greek, we call this the objective genitive, the subjective genitive. It's a subjective genitive. That means Jesus is the subject from which the testimony comes. If it's objective, he's the object that it is about. It's a bit technical, but that's related to interpreting this passage. So is it a testimony about Jesus or a testimony coming from Jesus? 
If it's a testimony about Jesus, then it's the testimony every Christian should have. Jesus tells me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let me tell you my testimony about Jesus. See, then everybody has it. But if it's a testimony coming from Jesus, it has prophetic implications. It's a prophetic message coming from Jesus. See, the subject from which it comes. The only way to determine which way it goes is the context. In the immediate context, it's quite clear Jesus is the subject from which the testimony comes. Look at the commandments of God. Where do the commandments of God come from? That's the Decalogue. Where do they come from? God. It's the same preposition there, by the way. So clearly this is to be interpreted as the subject from which God is the subject from which the commandments come. That's in a parallel connection with the testimony of Jesus Christ. If the commandments come from God, the testimony comes from Jesus. It is a prophetic utterance coming from Jesus. So in the immediate context, we can see that the remnant people of God, they, have, they keep all the commandments of God and they have a prophetic testimony coming from Jesus. But John, John is not settled with just this alone. Twice, later in the book of Revelation, he comes back to this theme. It's important to note the idea of the remnant people, those people living on the earth at the end of time, having the prophetic gift is very important to John. So he clarifies it even further. So he makes a reference to this verse uh, in chapter 19, verse 10. And we find an interesting parallel in this here. What happens, he sees a huge angel. He's overwhelmed with the angel. I saw a big angel. I think I'd feel the same way. He falls down to worship the angel. The angel will have none of that. The angel knows he should receive worship. You must not do that, the angel said. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren that hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the test. See the definition here. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So he defines it. What is the spirit of prophecy? That's the only time this is used in the Bible. The closest reference, and probably the best way to interpret it, is in light of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That's where we have the entirety of the spiritual gifts. They all come from the Holy Spirit. One of the gifts is the gift of prophecy. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy. So he's referring to the prophetic gift. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of the prophetic gift. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He takes 19.10 and connects it to chapter 22, verse 8 and 9. You, when you read it carefully, you see this very clearly. The same thing happens. He encounters a huge angel. He's overwhelmed. Notice the parallelism. I fell down to worship him at the feet of the angel who showed them to me, but he said to me, you must not do that. You see the connection? And down at the bottom, notice here in chapter 19, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit, spirit of prophecy over here, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. You see the echo there. Very clear connection, but I want to focus here on this phrase in a parallel connection to chapter 22, verse 8. I am your fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets. Notice over here in chapter 19, 10, I am a fellow servant with your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Now I've color-coded it. Your brethren here who hold the testimony of Jesus. Your brethren, the prophets. Do you see what's happening here? John is making it, making it explicitly and abundantly clear that the testimony of Jesus is a manifestation of the prophetic gift. It is a manifestation of prophetic gifts. So the remnant, they keep the commandments of God and they have the gift of prophecy in their midst. And so because of this, Seventh-day Adventists believe that with their history and its connection to the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, they are the remnant. They keep all the commandments of God have the testimony of Jesus, which is the prophetic gift. And it was manifested in the 70-year prophetic ministry of Daniel. 
Now, it's important to point out, and I tell my students this when I lecture on this in class, that, that Ellen White, you can't really say her DNA is in that text because it's more referring to the prophetic phenomenon, which means it could happen again. It's probably happened before. So it's, it's the prophetic flow. It's not just Ellen White, but without question, she is a major part of this as well. 70 years of prophetic ministry. So I wanted to discuss with you at the outset the biblical precedents we have. We have biblical evidence. This is not cunningly devised fables that our Adventist pioneers devised. It is from the Bible. And the origin of this prophetic gift is taught in Scripture. It is prophesied in this passage. We could say more, much more about it. Lots of good, lots of good things are written about it. You can find this at the ABCs. Great book, The Gift of Prophecy in Scripture and History, analyzes this verse and others in great detail. That's a good book to get if you want to explore that and see more of the biblical development. But let's shift gears now and come back to Revelation 12, 17. I want to focus on one word here for a second. They keep the commandments of God, the real men, and they have, notice I bolded the word have, they have the testimony of Jesus. Now in the Greek, the word have, it means a personal possession. So now echo. I don't like it. Echo, echo, echo. That's how the Greek word is pronounced. It, it carries this personal connotation. It means you don't just possess it as a collective body. It means you possess it as individuals. It belongs to every member of the remnant church. Not just the general conference president, not just the pastors, and not just the theologians. It belongs to everybody. The prophetic gift is yours. Ellen White, her writings were not received. Right there in that passage, there was great responsibility. Have you ever heard of the term Every single one of us. If that gift is ours, if it is yours, what are you doing with it? What kind of steward? Again, we see it as a monetary gift. God has made his people money as his gift, stewards of his gift. And we have this, this great gift to offer. What are you doing with it? Are you responsible with it or irresponsible? Using this gift irresponsibility is, is banging people over the head with Ellen White quotes. It's emphasizing Ellen White more than the Bible, which we're going to talk about now. It's interpreting her correctly. When you quote Ellen White, do you quote it in context? And we'll talk about interpretation tonight. If we are not interpreting Ellen White correctly, we will score students. So many of our black student movements are extremely poor students. Because they grossly misinterpret So those are some thoughts for us in this famous, well-known Adventist passage. Now let's talk about this gift that was spoken of in Scripture. Its relationship to the Bible. Scholars use a term to describe the Bible. They call it the canon. You're probably familiar with that term, the canon of Scripture. It's called a closed canon. Canon simply means a measuring rod, a term to measure something. The idea is that the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, are the final criterion for evaluating every other religious piece of writing. It's the final judge, the final authority. And when we say the biblical canon is closed, that means you cannot eat the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation comprise God's revelation. There is no more. This, the composing of the canon is a fascinating history, the Old Testament and New Testament. It is the work of the Holy Spirit and God's providence. But when John finished Revelation, that was the final book. And the 66 books came together in what we know as the Bible. They're amazing works of God's providence. So the closed canon means nothing can be added to it. Seventh-day Adventists believe that. You cannot add to the canon. You cannot add to the Bible. Our Mormon friends have added to the Bible. And other groups have added to the Bible. They believe that there has been 
recent revelation that is in addition to the Bible, sometimes even supersedes the Bible. <laughs> I once spoke at an Adventist church. The pastor asked me to come. Does the pastor membership believe that Ellen White is more important than the Bible? She is higher than the Bible. Well, that happens in our own circles sometimes. But Christians historically and Adventists presently and historically believe the biblical canon is closed. So then what is the function of the prophetic gift beyond biblical canon? We can explain that by looking at the different kinds of prophets in the Bible. You have the writing prophets. Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, John, they contributed books of the Bible. But then you've got a host of prophets that are mentioned in the Bible, but there are no books attributed to them. Here you've got in these places in the Old Testament, you've got the book of Yashir, the book of Gad, the book of Nathan the prophet. But have you ever read any of those books? They're not in the Bible. But they were considered authoritative prophetic utterances at that time. And then... They wrote books, but then you've got the oral prophets who didn't write anything, but they were certainly well-known and they spoke for God. Enoch, Elijah, Elisha, aren't they prophets? Don't they have prophetic authority? The biblical writers gave them that prophetic authority. They are called non-canonical prophets. They were prophets with full prophetic authority, but they were non-canonical in the sense that their books never appeared in the Bible. Stories about them, of course, in the Bible, such as Elijah and Elisha, but no actual writing uh, that forms a book of the Bible, uh, maybe statements, but that is part of the historical record. But there are actual books. This is a great example of Ellen White's prophetic utterance. These are non-canonical prophets. She was a post-canonical prophet or a post-biblical prophet. This illustration depicts after the closing of the biblical canon, she experienced the prophetic gift, and anyone else who has the authentic prophetic gift, it's post-biblical, post-canonical. The key, though, is the relationship of the post-canonical, post-biblical gift to the Christian. That's the heart of the matter. That's what we want to look at. Now, to illustrate the flow of prophecy and revelation in the Bible in relationship to, to the post-canonical prophetic gift, I think you'll find this helpful. Let's look at revelation in the Bible. The initial expression of revelation was through Moses. The initial revela revelation, Genesis, we call them the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you have the prophets. This is continuing revelation. You know what the prophets did. They didn't add anything new so much as they applied what Moses had written. They gave inspired applications of what Moses wrote. You read it repeatedly. The historical books do that too. They took Deuteronomy, they took Leviticus, and they gave it inspired applications to the people of that time. That's continuing revelation. It reaches its apex, of course, the final revelation. I mean, what's the whole Old Testament about? What's it pointing toward? Christ, the Messiah. That was the hope. And it reaches its peak in the four Gospels, the manifestation of Jesus. So what comes after that? I mean, you can't go any higher than that. Christ, the Messiah himself here. Well, you have the apostolic witness and interpretation of Christ. What is that? That's the book of Acts, the history of the church and the epistles of Paul, the epistles of Peter, the other disciples. They gave an apostolic witness. They were with Jesus. And they gave a, an, an inspired interpretation of Christ. He applied it to the people of that day. Of course, key, authoritative for us. Now, Frank Holbrook, who used to teach at Southern University when I was a student, a great theologian, he put it this way. So well, the relationship of the prophetic gift to the revelation in the Bible. Since Christ's life on earth and the apostolic interpretation of it provide the ultimate revelation of God, no function of the prophetic gift 
subsequent to the New Testament can equal, supersede, or be an addition to its unique witness. But rather, all claims to the prophetic gift must be tested by the Scriptures. So, the very fact that Ellen White's prophetic ministry and prophetic writings come chronologically after the closing of the Testament, then they are subordinate to the canon. And they can only be validated by the canon, tested by the Scriptures. That's how the the post-biblical prophetic gift operates. And yet, there's confusion said before, church, that half of its people is gawking Ellen White above the Bible. I don't find that happening so much as the other who's equal with Ellen White. But more on this later. Let's analyze for a moment the purpose of the post-canonical prophetic gift. The post-canonical by the way, this is there's a lot of fun stories in this book, isn't it? It's just a bit more heavy today. You okay with that? You've been tracking with me. You're not going to fall asleep, Barry? Pastor Barry? All right. I know too well. That's why I picked you. The post-canonical manifestation of the prophetic gift, whenever it shall appear, will be similar to its function in the time of the apostles and will carry with it the authority of the Spirit who speaks to the church through it. Now, what are some characteristics of this this post-canonical gift? The purpose of the post-canonical prophetic gift, the post-biblical prophetic gift, will manifest itself as follows. First of all, it will point back to the Holy Scripture as the basis of faith and practice. That's what disqualifies the Mormon Bible as a true revelation, because it exalts itself as the new revelation. In addition to the Bible, but the true manifestation of the prophetic gift will point back that is precisely what Ellen White did repeatedly in this section. She listened. It will illuminate and clarify teachings already present in Scripture, just like the Old Testament prophets applied Moses to their day. Ellen White applied Scripture to her day. She will emphasize the point that the main focus of her prophetic writings are in about this sometimes it's getting hanging out what was it Ellen White sometimes she don't we view her as the final interpretation of scripture no because she wasn't manifesting herself and, and writing as a final interpretation she was giving application of the scripture led by the Holy Spirit authoritative inspired application yes that involved interpretation but she never meant for her writing to be the final interpretation she gave inspired applications which means she does it exactly her interpretations did not start from any prophetical text any subject that was related to this it will apply the principles of scripture to daily living application as I said it will it will it may be a catalyst to direct the church to carry out its commission as charged in the scriptures and this is related to her function in the church at the time she helped the church focus its mission. Follow the commission that as charged in the scriptures. It may assist in establishing the church that she certainly helped establish. There were two founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her writings on mission and identity are crucial to our understanding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It may reprove, warn, instruct, encourage, build up, and unify the church in the truths of Scripture without question, repeatedly. She did that again and again. Reprove, warn, instruct, encourage, build up, unify the church in Scripture. That is the whole focus of her prophetic ministry, the tenor of her prophetic ministry. Seven, finally, it may function to protect the church from false doctrine and to establish believers in the true way. Now, are you aware that Ellen White, throughout her seven years of prophetic ministry, ministry repeatedly encountered heresies, false doctrine, and directed the church away from it? There are times where she could have changed 
was just a letter from her saved the general conference leaders from a thousand groundhog intelligence letters, two letters that came that day three letters came that day which would be you'd written some time ago for a blog that's been read before the committee all rejected and it's about you because we're just defeated so this is the function of a prophetic gift Without question, Ellen White's 100,000 plus pages fulfilled that role. So this is the function of the post-biblical gift. And again, we want to explore its relationship in terms of fullness of a gospel. Friends, if, if you get this wrong, that is, you get Ellen White's relationship to the Bible wrong, everything illustrate it this way. At the bottom, we have the writings of other men, Christian writings, great Christian writings. Check this one out. Healing, gift healing. People who, who write religious things but don't have the gift of inspiration. And then of course, up here you have the Bible. So, in terms of a visual, where would we place Ellen White's writings? Well, let's first of all look where they don't belong. Now, they don't belong up here, equal with the Bible. And they especially don't belong there. Now, I have found that audiences universally agree to the divine above the Bible, those writings. They believe that in theory. Or, or in conversation, Ellen White gets more of the emphasis. It's like a woman in a church like mine says years ago. She said, Pastor, I, I really don't understand the Bible or take the exegesis so well. But I really know Ellen White. She's so easy to read. So I read her, I don't read the Bible. That just makes Ellen White sound smart. So we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and put them down here either. That's happening. Both, all three of these positions so far are happening in the church. Putting them on an equal level and some will say, well, she has pastoral authority. She's a devotional authority to me, but not inspired prophetic authority. That's not a correct position either. You know where I'm going, don't you? Right, right there in the middle. Because of the inherent quality of inspiration in these writings, they're above the writings of other men. In fact, they're one of the least of the holidays in terms of authority. So I want to explore the relationship of her writings to the Bible. I want to discuss revelation inspiration. The quality of her inspiration is what makes her writings above the writings of other men. But if her inspiration is the same as that of the Bible... Why does she have to equal with the Bible? Let's, let's look for a moment at how Revelation inspiration operates. Here's a diagram that I found helpful to teach with. Revelation and inspiration are a process that are distinct, but they're, they're locked together. They work together. And this is how we hear God's revelation to us today. Revelation is a vertical event. At the top, here is God. He reveals himself through dreams and visions to the prophets. To the point is the prophet. The point. The prophet receives the revelation. He receives the dreams, the vision, the information from God. And what's he going to do with it once he's got it? Does God just leave them to communicate it on their own? No, that's where inspiration comes in. Inspiration is the horizontal process by which God enables the prophet to communicate clearly and effectively the divine truth to the prophet. So revelation is a divine act in which God reveals himself and truth about himself to the prophet, 
Inspiration is a divine act in which God enables the prophet to authoritatively communicate God's message to the people. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, the prophets, the the prophetic books we have, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you realize that those were all delivered orally first. They preached their prophetic oracles first. Then they wrote them down later. So they were delivered fresh and orally to the audiences. But then later they wrote them down, and that is how we, of course, got the books of the Bible. So it's this process of revelation, inspiration. But there's another divine act that God gives to human beings, and that is illumination. This is discussed in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, 15, and 16. What did Jesus promise there? Remember John 14? He says, I will give you another comforter. Who is that? The Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. And I want you to notice something. Notice that in Revelation, inspiration is a solid light. But illumination is a battle light. Revelation inspiration is only for those who receive the prophetic message, the prophetic gift of inspiration. But inspiration is for every believer. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you. I I need to be clear. Yes, illumination. Revelation inspiration is only for a select few who have the prophetic gift. Illumination is for everyone. It comes in degrees. It's how open we are to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. But now when you hear a preacher and you say, wow, that preacher is really good, he must be inspired. Hear that. You don't even mean he's inspired in your heart. You know that. He's inspired. Now, you be careful because some will say, that that pastor is inspired. I don't know what he means, inspired like he's talking through the Bible. No, that Pray for what? The Holy Spirit. You will pray that prayer. You'll pray for illumination. For the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind so you can understand the inspired written revelation. The product of revelation inspiration. This is God's means of communication to us. So you and I, as the people, we receive the book. Isn't isn't this wonderful? This is how you and I not had any dream, uh, prophetic dreams or visions. I really don't. I've not had that. Probably you haven't either. But I can tap into Daniel's vision and John's vision and Ezekiel's vision through the Bible because they had been authoritatively and carefully communicated to me through this process. But my mind is carnal. I can't interpret them the deeper meaning myself, I need divine aid. So God, give me illumination. Remember that language? We're never on our own. So guess what? You don't have to fear coming to understand the Bible. I don't have any added benefit from hearing God's word for you. Okay? Illumination is for everybody. this one. Let me make sure. That was a joke. I just remember this is being taped. That was a joke. They don't see my gestures. This is where we're going. This is Ellen White's experience. Her experience of revelation inspiration was the same. She received dreams and visions as the prophet. God enacted that on her. And then he enabled her to write and speak authoritatively or to authoritatively communicate God's message, God's revelation to others. And that, of course, resulted in her writing. She describes it this way in her writing. She describes having a vision. You can hear me. Having a vision 
of them writing the vision. Having the vision, that's the revelation. God revealing the vision to her, his, his message to her. And then writing it out, that's the process of inspiration. Now, we could certainly pour this idea of inspiration into our lives. But we'll be able to do that now. I'll touch on it some tomorrow as we point at interpretation. We need to be careful that we're not yielding and abusing Scripture. The Bible's teaching of inspiration is very, very rigid. And by rigid, I mean many rabbinical, many Christians in general have the idea that God dictated his message word for word to Samuel. And that simply is not what you find in the Bible. You find a more holistic view of inspiration. We don't have time to explore this, but if you if this chapter here tempts us and you want to explore it further, my book, All of That Under Fire, there are two chapters on revelation inspiration. This it just it really elaborates this idea of what I call whole person inspiration. That's an important concept as we talk about inspiration. So Ellen White's prophetic experience, her experience of revelation inspiration, was qualitatively the same as the biblical prophets. In the Bible and in Ellen White's experience, there's no such thing as degrees of inspiration. In Adventist history, one of the the prophet presidents developed the doctrine of degrees of inspiration. Ellen White rebuked him. This is not biblical. He said the what Jesus and Moses were in the highest. Then the Ecclesiastes and uh, Esther and Proverbs, those are lower in hierarchy of degrees of inspiration. These books are less inspired than the others. That's not taught in the Bible at all. There are no degrees. There's no such thing as partial inspiration either. You were inspired or you're not inspired. And the best illustration of it, and ladies, you will like this. Can a woman be partially pregnant? Are there degrees of pregnancy? I don't think so. Some of you know that more than I do. You are, you are pregnant or you are not pregnant. You are inspired prophetically or you were not inspired prophetically. There's no in-between. So if Ellen White had inspiration, it was qualitatively the same as the biblical writers. So that brings us to this important question. If Ellen White's inspiration was qualitatively the same as the Bible writers, then isn't she on the same level with the Bible's authority? It is a good question. It obviously comes to mind, and this is where the Adventist church, with the gift of a prophet, tend to get a bit confused. She's inspired like the biblical writers, so then she has the same authority as them. And our critics, they say, well, you see... You say she's inspired like the Bible, therefore, just like Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, the Mormon prophets, well, then she has the same authority as the Bible. That means her writings function as another Bible. No, no, no. Let's unpack that. There are no degrees of inspiration, according to what we find in the Scriptures, but there are degrees degrees of authority. The best illustration of this is humility. Right? You've got degrees that just to take these three um, levels here. You've got the general who obviously has the highest authority in the army and you've got a lieutenant and a private. Now, when the lieutenant barks an order to that private, Can that private say, well, Lieutenant, you don't have the authority of the general over me. You're not the highest authority, so I can only obey you partially. That private better obey the lieutenant to the same degree that he better obey the general. The lieutenant is simply operating in the framework of the general. The lieutenant is carrying out the general's command, and he's telling the private what to do. And that private better obey the lieutenant just as much as he would obey the word from the general. So there are degrees of authority in the military. And it's that way with biblical authority. The analogy here is pretty clear. 
the general, in our analogy, would function as the Bible. It has the, the final word of authority. Ellen White's prophetic gift, the post-canonical prophetic gift, functions as the lieutenant. A lesser authority, but should be obedient by the private be any less to the lesser authority? No. Ellen White, her authority is functioning as a subordinate authority to the scripture. Her authority is to authoritatively tell others to obey the Bible. That's his final authority. See how that works? So there's no less obedience, but there are different degrees of authority. How did Ellen White explain these differences to us? Let's listen to her explanation of this. She used this famous phrase, a lesser light to lead to the greater light. Now, what did she mean by that? Here's some other statements that she made that are most important. The Holy Scriptures are to be accepted as the authoritative, infallible revelation of His will. They are the standard of character, the revealer of doctrine, and the test of experience. That's Great Controversy, page 7, 1911 edition. She never said anything like that about the Word of God. She gave that language to the Bible alone. The infallible revelation of His will, the standard of character, the revealer of doctrine, she never created any new doctrine. Created new doctrine. That's what she did. She never did that. She did not create the 1844 judgment. She did not establish the Sabbath. That was her doctrine. It came from the Bible. In our doctrinal formation, if you go back to the historic Sabbath history, the late 1840s, part of Adventist history, her prophetic role was central. But she always Visions would point to verses of Scripture and tell them to study that. She did not initiate any doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventists. That came from the Bible. A number of statements go this way. She described the Bible as the unerring counsel of God, all that is needful for the saving of the soul. Her testimony, she said, should not be carried to the front, nor are they to take the place of the Word. Young and old, she said, should read the Word of God. And not only should they read it, but they should study it with diligent earnestness, praying, believing, and searching. Thus they will find the hidden treasure. For the Lord will quicken their understanding. And this is my favorite statement from Testimonies, Volume 6, page 399. Favorite statement in all of her writing. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us, just as surely as though we could hear it with our ears. If we realize this, with what earnestness would we search its precepts? The reading and contemplation of the Scriptures would be regarded as an audience with the infinite God. Now that makes me wonder. Stop. Stop me. Go read my Bible. God's voice speaking to us. As surely as we, though we could hear it with our ears, will you open up the Bible? Will you read those words? Will you think about those words? Will you ponder those words? That's God speaking to you. That's the direct revelation. The revelation is right there. That's why he doesn't give dreams and visions to all of us, because we have it in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit will take those words and apply them specifically to the circumstances of your life. The Bible is always relevant. There's not a passage that's irrelevant to what you're experiencing in your life right now. It will speak to your needs. It will speak to your problems. It will speak to your challenges. That's what she's doing here. She's pointing her readers to the Bible. She wants her readers to experience the Bible in a personal way. So, I guess I should ask the question, how is it with you and your Bible? Did you spend some time in the Scriptures this morning? Come. Did you hear God speaking to you? Some time in your life devoted to hearing the word. Don't miss something this week. In an open letter to her fellow church members written December 6, 1902, 
And published in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald of January 20, 1903, Mrs. White was looking ahead and especially burdened about the call for her work. In this context, she writes, Sister White is not the originator of these books. Just the context of these articles revealing the selling the book Christ's object is complete. Books on the parables of Christ. Sister White is not the originator of these books. They contain the instruction that during her life work God has been giving her. They contain the precious comforting life that God has graciously given His servant to be given to the world. From their pages, this light is to shine into the hearts of men and women leading them to the Savior. The Lord has declared that these books are to be scattered throughout the world. Now that's pretty heavy. And a whole article is promoting her book. And if you didn't read it, the whole thing, you might get the idea that she's saying, hey, look, this is the light that we need to put in the Bible aside. <laughs> the statement she makes in this article pulls it all together. By way of amplifying the idea, light is to shine from her writings, she says, the Lord has sent his people much instruction, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Little heed is given to the Bible. You see what she does? Without that phrase, you would think she's exalting her writings above everything else. But she does not. She puts this key interpretive phrase right here. Little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women. All the bold and underlining is mine, of course. The Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Now, the lesser light, the antecedent to that phrase is clearly the line upon line. That's her writing. The greater light finds its antecedent clearly in the Bible. Little heed is given to the Bible. That's the greater light. So the Lord has given a lesser light to lead us to the greater light, to motivate us to read the greater light. That's the background of this important statement. Lesser light, greater light. Let's unpack it further. Here, Mrs. White makes incidental reference to Genesis 1.16, and God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, the sun and the moon. By analogy, she is saying that the Bible is the greater light, and her writings are the lesser light. Very clearly. This analogy of the sun and the moon as superior, inferior lights is particularly apt because the light that is radiated by the two orbs in the heavens is all the same kind of light. The moon has no light of its own. It simply reflects the light of the sun. You see the image you're seeing here, though? In other words, I get That's what I'm all about. important visions of but it's somewhat of a rebuke she had a dream and she saw the Bible and she saw the testimony surrounding it and she told the people look the purpose of my writing is to tell you this if you have studied my time on earth questioned her writing says if you studied the Bible like you should, I wouldn't have had you write it. But because you have, God has given you this light to get you deeper into His Word. So clear to me. Critics always say, well, Ellen White is competing with the Bible and, and exalting herself above the Bible. That is so profoundly misunderstood. But I'm not here to refute the Scripture. Ellen White's writings, they reflect Scripture and they exalt Scripture. Scripture, therefore, is the greater light, while her writings are the lesser light. Another very helpful analogy was developed by Mrs. S.M.I. Henry, a mid-19th century convert to Seventh-day Adventism. It's a very interesting story about Mrs. S.M.I. Henry. She was a part, she was a leader, a high-ranking leader in the women's Christian picnic popular evangelical movement of the day. You've heard about the Adventist message and been converted to it. She and Ellen White became friends, but at this time Ellen White was an academic. So they never met face to face. Mrs. Henry died before they could, but they developed a correspondence and letter. 
absolutely interesting story. But Mr. Henry, as a background, before I read this, he went to Battle Creek, Michigan, met all these Adventists. And he found out that the he found that all these Adventists in Battle Creek, there was a heavy concentration of Adventists in Battle Creek. And he found that they were frequently violating the Lord's Day. And if you asked them about it, about it, the Lord said that this was not Once he read Ellen White, that didn't make sense. I saw it, Ellen White was slain. So she wrote a couple of articles endeavoring to articulate this, expressing her own mind, and endeavoring to help her new people. So she wrote an extended and fascinating account about her personal struggle to understand the function of the gift of prophecy in modern times. She was a new convert. She struggled with this. That's why you need to be so careful when you read people's to really understand what the interaction, what a gift is, and what it signifies. She suggested that the spirit of prophecy is best viewed as a lens or a telescope through which to look at the Bible. Now, I had a big deal with that. You know, when I have a telescope, I like the stars. Now, look, when I look at the stars, I don't look at my telescope. I don't look through the telescope. But she said, if the lens is mistaken for the field, we can receive but a very narrow conception of the most magnificent spectacle with which the heavens ever regarded earth. But in its proper office as a medium of enlarged and clearer vision, as a telescope, the testimony has a wonderfully beautiful and holy office. And then she said this. A telescope doesn't put more stars into the heavens. It simply reveals more clearly the stars that are already there. The testimonies are not the heavens radiating the countless orbs of truth, but they do lead the eye and give it power to penetrate into the glories of the mysterious living word of God. And what's interesting, Denton Rebotham, one of my professors of yesteryear, uh, closely related at that time, he had heard and noted that Sister White herself said that Mistress Ephraim Henry had caught the relationship between the writings of the spirit of prophecy in the Bible as clearly and accurately as anyone could ever put into words. So there you have it. It's a great analogy. Here's another one. If I point to the lake out there, I do not want you to look at my lake. I want you to look at that lake. See how small and blue it is as you just dive into it? See, I want you to look at the lake. were a, a lead into the Bible, see? They're applying the Bible. C.H. Jemison, teacher of yesteryear in his classic book, A Prophet Among You, just got out of print, just got out back in print. In fact, your ABC got a, a, a paperback copy of his for the year of having. This was a textbook three decades, three and a half decades ago when I studied it. After bringing to attention to such Ellen White expressions as additional truth is not brought out and the written testimonies are not to give new light, these are words, phrases Ellen White used, Jemison posed the question, are there no descriptions given and details enumerated in the Ellen White books that are not mentioned in the Bible? He responded, certainly, or there would be little purpose in the giving of these messages. Are these not additional truth and new light? Critics will say that. Not at all. The writings introduce no new topic, no new revelation, no new doctrine. They simply give additional details and round out subjects already a part of the scriptural, scriptures record. The whole realm of spiritual truth is encompassed by the Bible. There is no need for more to be added. Authoritative seventy acts she wrote in the Galatian Bible, but further details, incidents, and applications made in these modern writings lead to keener perception and deeper understanding of the truths already revealed. There's a study done in 1980. It's somewhat dated, but but it's it's still relevant for me. If it were to be done today, I, I bet that they would have the same results. It was the research question was who reads Ellen White. 
The church members who regularly read the writings of Ellen White differ significantly from those or other church members who seldom do. Both groups will profile the differences we discuss. For example, on the topic of strong relationship with Jesus Christ, those Adventists who read Ellen White regularly, 85% of them had a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who didn't read Ellen White regularly, only 59% had a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. Regarding the topic of assurance of salvation, 82% of the Adventists who read Ellen White regularly had assurance of salvation. Only 59% of the non-members had assurance of salvation. And on the vital topic of daily personal Bible study, 82% of the readers of Ellen White read their Bible on a daily basis. Only 47% of those who didn't read Ellen White regularly read their Bible, studied their Bible regularly. This last topic is most significant. This is a 35% difference, the strongest of any item in the study. Readers are much more likely to be, readers of Ellen White, that is, are much more likely to be Bible students than are non-readers. Let me give you a testimony in my own experience. I was converted to the Adventist church through the Pentecost Prophecies Crusade. As I said yesterday, I'll never forget my early experience of reading Ellen White. Southern students. I read, I, I read through the Testaments, I read through the Passages, to read what the Lord had for me. But when I read Ellen White, I never fell in love with Ellen White. I wanted to read the Bible more. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't always happen that way. Some get read Ellen White, they tend to read it more in the Bible. But fortunately, if the Holy Spirit helped and worked right in my life, I fell in love. It's influenced my whole philosophy of teaching preaching. It goes all the way back to the early years of my falling in love with my Bible. My philosophy of preaching is preachers should preach the Bible. They should preach expository sermons. If they preach topical sermons but are not rooted and grounded in the Bible, what's the point? And that goes back to Ellen White. One night after reading Ellen White, I just I had been laying in bed in the dorm in Powell's Hall. I took my Bible and I put it in my chest and I just hugged my dad. I said, Dad, I just want to have the power of the Spirit to have God speak to me. It's because of Ellen White. That's her purpose. Thank God it worked that way for me. She's not the end. She's the means to the end. To get us into Scripture. Another way I like to put it is what I like to call the greater light, lesser light circle. You start reading the Bible. But that will create an appetite for other spiritual writings. And that leads us right to the writings of Ellen White. I want to tell you something. I want you to read Ellen White. But I want you to read your Bible more. Please read your Bible more than you read Ellen White. But having said that, don't forget Ellen White. Because she's a great writer. start with the Bible, it leads you to her writings. Then you read Ellen White. It creates an appetite to go back to Scripture. Look at the index of any Ellen White book. It's the Bible Scriptures that she used. Scripture that she used. Almost every major book has a, a verse from a practically every book of the Bible. A scholar did a study and found that on pages, every page of Ellen White's Writings in all of her books, there's constant allusions and references to Scripture. Permeated with Scripture. So they lead you back to the Bible. This is the greater light, lesser light circle. That, I believe, is the best way of spiritual growth and spiritual consumption for the Adventist. That should be the pattern for Southern Baptists. We've been given this great book. We often say the book and the book. We have the book, the Bible, and we have the books of Ellen White.
the book and the book. And I'm suggesting that prophet's statement is not objective. I believe there's a better way to do it. I believe it should go this way. The book bears Bible first, then read Ellen White. It's the other way around. The Bible first, then Ellen White. And it's in your reading, your your tags, that's what I like to call it, my tags. It's an acronym for time of mind research. That's what time is for. Take a tag time every day. Time alone with God. Tag time. It's not a ritual anymore, but I repeat it. I like it. Tag time. And so, in your tag time, you read the Bible first. And if you don't have time to read Ellen White, that's okay. You've read your Bible. Put her in another tag. Take that Bible. That's what I like to call it. A good way to put it, she was the prophet to the church. Her prophetic ministry, a friend of mine at the seminary, and a great Ellen White scholar, Merlin Burt, he puts it this way. He says she was a prophet to the scriptures. Her whole focus was towards the Bible. So she's not just a prophet about the Bible or in addition to the Bible. She's a prophet to the scriptures. So that's, that's her focus. Every, everything that she said was to exalt the Bible, to bring readers into the Bible, to amplify the Bible to illuminate the Bible and exalt the Bible. That was the focus of her entire prophetic ministry. So she can be described no better than a prophet to the Scriptures. So, I'm going to conclude with a story. Ready for a story? You've given me a lot of stuff. I need to hear the story now. This is of a 1909 general election. Ellen White traveled from the West Coast across the country. and She was up in years. She would die six years later. She's 61. She's in her early 80s. She traveled across the country and spoke to the voters. She entered at the general conference. They, of course, put her on the docket. One of the main speakers. She spoke throughout the week. Came to Sunday afternoon. In those days, they ended general conference on Sunday afternoon. She was the last speaker. And everybody thinks this would probably be the last time they would ever hear her in the general conference. Think not. She never attended general conference the rest of her life. Until she was 95. She was dying in her 80s. They all think this would be the last time they would hear the living gift of prophecy at general conference. She preached the message in 2 Peter on being partakers of the divine nature, accessing the great precious promises of Scripture. She spoke eloquently to those. All were moved. Many eyes were filled with tears. She finished her sermon. She walked up to the pulpit, took the Bible she'd been preaching from, and placed it next to her heart slowly turned to take her seat. And then she paused for a moment. Slowly turned back around, every eye riveted upon her. As if she had a new sermon. She went back to the pulpit, took that Bible, her arms trembling with age. She held that Bible her last words at the general conference. Brethren, I commend to you this book. Placed it next to her heart. Those were her last words to the general conference. She could have taken great controversy and desire of ages and lifted it up and everybody would have appreciated it. She took the Bible and exalted that before the general conference. That was more than just a a kind gesture to the Bible. That was symbolic of her lifelong passion 
to exalt the Scripture before her people. She wanted her people to be a people of the book. That's why I love her more. That's why I love my Bible more. This is who we are at Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are people of the book. Then the book comes. This is all we got. I don't need anyone to see any Summing it up, themes that you find in her writings, the love of God, the great controversy theme, Jesus Christ and salvation through him, radical discipleship. She didn't talk about just being a good Christian. She talked about total obedience to Jesus, the centrality of God's word, the third angel's message and seventh-day Adventist mission, the second coming. These are themes that dominate her writings, ultimately the purpose of her writings. To generate spiritual vitality, vitality, to create a readiness for Christ's coming, and ultimately gender a love for Christ. Partake, beloved. Partake of the Lord. means to us as a people. We're really thankful that you have revealed yourself through truth to us in your word, the Bible. Lord, make us all better Bible students than we've ever been in the past. Bring us deep into your word that we might hear your voice speaking to us today. Again, as we read the writings of other writers, Bring your own spiritual vitality. We will be truly strong, well-nurtured Christians. May that be our attitude as we all these things and that Jesus will be glorified. Interpreting Ellen White's